Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, to start off the show, uh, we're going to have Donna Michelle do a land acknowledgement. Thanks, Glenn. I just wanted to acknowledge the traditional keepers of this territory that we're on, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Mississaugas of New Credit, the Seneca, the Huron-Wendat, and all the keepers of this territory since, since that time, and to just acknowledge that we are on a land governed by the Treaty of the Dish with One Spoon, which says that this territory shall be shared by all. Thank you. And now I'm going to do something really sad, uh, and then I'm going to leave, uh, and we're going to be sad for a second, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to start the show. So um, uh, I just found out today that uh, Stuart McLean has passed. Yeah, I know. Uh, he will obviously be missed. He was obviously a legendary broadcaster and storyteller, and it didn't seem right to start a Canadian storytelling show uh, without mentioning it and uh, honoring his passing. So we'd like to actually... Uh, do the show tonight uh, in honor of Stuart McLean. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, folks, I'd like to begin by introducing you to my good friend. Uh, this is Graham Isidore. He is a regular contributor to Vice Canada and uh, the uh, satirical punk news site Hard Times. And uh, he is also the artistic director of Press Gang Theatre Company, which regularly puts on these shows right here in the garrison. Uh, so that's Graham. I did nothing to earn that yet, but I will take it. Thank you. Um, this guy over here, this handsome dude, uh, this charming gentleman, this guy with the incredible voice is Glenn Berriman. Uh, he is the host of Spacing Radio, and he just got a new title at Spacing Magazine. You want to tell these fine people what it is? And the managing editor of Spacing Magazine, Canada's premier urbanist magazine. Yeah. That's worth a round of applause. I actually got him to tell you the title because I forgot what the title was. You're a bad friend. Yeah, I'm a terrible friend. Uh, you want to do the tagline for your podcast? Right. So how many people have heard the podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how many people have been to a storytelling show? Okay. For the people who haven't heard the podcast, we started off like this. <clears throat> this is Spacing Radio. Radio guy voice, right? That's like stellar radio guy voice. You guys want to hear my radio guy voice? Okay. We're tentative. All right, coming in before the top of the hour, it's Glenn Barrowman standing over here. We're doing banter to begin the show that we pre planned. You know what? It's got legs. Yeah, it's, it's not got bad. legs. I think you can workshop it. You want to do yours? Okay, here's my radio voice. <clears throat> Broadcasting from the garrison on Dundas Street, West Toronto, Ontario, Canada, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. He has to show me up at pretty much everything he does. So, guys, uh, this is a storytelling show. For you guys who have never been here before, what we do is we pick a theme. Uh, tonight's theme is Cities in Honor of Spacing Magazine. And we have a variety of um, artists, musicians, actors, what have you, come and tell their best true story on that theme. Storytelling show, a lot like a stand-up comedy show, except if somebody tells a joke and it falls flat, they just pretend they were being interesting. You know, buddy, uh, I don't think they liked that as much as you did, so uh, he was being interesting, I folks. being interesting. He was being interesting. Again, this planned banter is going so well right now. Um... I forgot what comes next, so why don't we just get this thing started? You had an intro for me, right? I you had an intro for you. Graham Isidore will be your host for the, uh, for the afternoon, for the evening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they say there are 8 million, city, uh, 8 million stories in the naked city. Uh, there's got to be at least 15 in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Uh, and Graham has one of them, so give it away for Graham. Okay, people. So, my first job that I ever had was picking up trash by the side of the road in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Had a fancy title. It was Street Sweeper. And for nine hours at a time, what I would do is walk up and down Clifton Hill, Niagara's tourist promenade, armed only with my broom and dustpan, picking up trash. For this task, I was paid six seventy-five an hour. 
At the time, I thought that six seventy-five an hour was total bullshit. But in retrospect, six seventy-five an hour to pick up trash by the side of the road is actually a pretty good wage. Um, the average wage for getting paid to pick up trash by the side of the road is actually nothing, because uh, the only other people who pick up trash by the side of the road are convicts. Um, convicts, people, terrible. Um, guys, my first day on the job, these three things happened. Um, a Texas man who was as wide as he was tall threw a half a can of Pringles at my face. Uh, it hit me in the temple, and when it fell to the ground, he said, you missed a spot. That was within the first hour. Second thing that happened, uh, I was told that I needed to change the garbage on all the garbage cans on Clifton Hill. And when I got to the last garbage can, I pulled out the bag, and it was full of garbage juice. Um, you guys familiar with garbage juice? <laughs> Know what it is? It's the juice that collects at the bottom of a garbage bank. Oh, geez, what happened with my voice here tonight? I got on the radio and everything got all messed up. Um, Anyways, the garbage juice, uh, it spilled on me because there was a hole in the bottom of the garbage bag. My uniform uh, for street sweeping that I got paid $6.75 an hour to do was white khaki the whole time. So just garbage juice all down my front and sort of collected in this area. Now, guys, if you're familiar with garbage juice, it's very brown, uh, just like super brown. It's the brownest thing. So in addition to smelling like garbage juice for the rest of the day, I also look like I shit myself. Six seventy-five an hour. Um, the most embarrassing thing that happened that day, though, was actually uh, meeting my high school crush. Uh, I had a crush on this girl. Her name was Brittany Randall, and she saw me covered in garbage juice, armed with a broom and dustpan, and sweeping up trash that uh, her boyfriend, who she was with, had actually thrown in front of me. Um, Her boyfriend saw my broom, and he said, sweeping is gay. (laughs) That's what he said. It's a really progressive place. Um, So anyways, guys, uh, I immediately knew that I wanted to quit my street sweeping job. But when I went home and I told my parents of this decision, they were pretty upset. Um, my dad, in particular, was upset because he said uh, the only reason I had gotten the position in the first place was because he knew the guy who owned that side of Clifton Hill. Uh, he said that if I quit the job, he'd be really, really disappointed in me and he would be incredibly embarrassed. Um, you know, at the time, this kind of made sense, but in retrospect, total bullshit, right? <laughs> just like completely nonsensical because I was 15 years old and I had no prior work experience. But if I needed nepotism to get a job where people threw trash at me every day, he had a lot more to be embarrassed about. So I worked as a street sweeper for two years and I can honestly say um, that job, it formed my disposition more than anything else in my life. For nine hours a day, I would just walk up and down Clifton Hill, and people would throw trash at me, literally. And I would watch these people throw their hard-earned money away on um, caramel corn and candy corn and corn on the cob and corn dogs, all sorts of corn-related material. Uh, and then they'd pay fifteen seventy-five each to go into wax museums and see melted uh, wax statues of, like, Beyonce and other stars when a mere 200 yards away was Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, one of the most beautiful things in the whole entire world, but they're going to pay fifteen seventy-five to see melted Beyonce. So that, to me, is Niagara Falls. Um, that, to me, that decision is Niagara Falls in a nutshell. And it's kind of people in a nutshell, too, right? It's just total bullshit. It's a bad decision. It's a bad place, and none of you should ever go there. Um, <laughs> Anyways, um, there's a lot of different memories I have as a street sweeper, but there's one day in particular that was really, really bad. Uh, I was walking up and down Clifton Hill, and I got a call on my walkie-talkie, and my manager was on the other end, and they said, Graham, there's been an incident at the Mystery Maze, and you guys need to get here immediately. (laughs) You guys familiar with the Mystery Maze? Okay, Mystery Maze is a parking lot where they put up uh, plastic panels and plywood and formed it into this, like, labyrinth. Um, the goal of the mystery maze is to finish it in three minutes. And if you do, you win a free ticket to the mystery maze. Uh, it's like an Ouroboros thing going on. It's, uh, it's really strange. So you could just stay and enjoy yourself, or you could rush through and then do it again. Uh, it's odd. 
Anyways, um, so I get to the mystery maze, and the mystery of the mystery maze that day is that somewhere in the labyrinth, someone has taken a shit. Um, a child has had an accident, and it's my job with my broom and dustpan, and now my mop and bucket, to go into the maze and find the shit. Um, you guys ever look for something you didn't want to find before? It's a messed up feeling. Um, so I walk into the maze, and I'm immediately hit with just this, like, dense stink. It's a terrible thing. And I know I'm getting closer to the shit somewhere in the maze because this stink is just getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, I turn a corner, and there it is. And, guys, what I was promised was, like, a child-sized accident. Um, this is how we're starting the show. Um, and what I found was, like, a full adult-sized shit. Um, and I wish it was a solid, but it wasn't. Uh, but I knew if I quit, I'd embarrass my father. So I was mopping up a shit in a maze, and not for the first time, and not for the last, I had the thought that I need to get the fuck out of this city. That's the story. Guys, um, we have an incredible show for you tonight. I'm very, very excited to do things. Um, Glenn Barrowman will be back up here giving you a wonderful banter and radio guy voice for the entire evening. He's going to intro some people, and I'm going to intro a person right now. Um, our next performer has been a regular on this stage for the past little while. He is one of my favorite stand-ups in the city. Let's get Sean Hogan up here, shall we? Graham and Glenn! So good. It was a lot better than Graham's. Uh, it was so good, though. I wanted to, like, I, backstage, I wanted to ask him if he could just, if I could whisper in his ear, if he would just tell my story, but he wouldn't go for it. Um, so here I am. How are you? You're great. Cool. Um, where do I start from here? Uh, how about here? Uh, the game of, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever played rugby. You don't look like a rugby crowd. Okay, that was judgy. Um, the game of rugby was introduced... It wasn't introduced to my high school until the early to mid-90s. Like it was played elsewhere on, uh, on Prince Edward Island. It was played elsewhere for years, since the 70s. But my high school never played it. Not until one man brought it there in the mid to late 90s. And when it was brought there for the first five, six, seven years, we were the worst rugby team I think in the world. Like, we were, I didn't play, but we were the worst. Like, we would get outscored. Sometimes the games would be, would be 70 to 0, 85 to 0, other numbers to 0. Like, very large numbers to 0. And we would just, we never had even had a dream of winning. And so when I first uh, entered high school in grade 10, in that eighth year that rugby was a part of the high school program, when I entered grade 10, I remember right away the coach approached me. He's like, Sean, you need to play. You need to play rugby. And I knew why he wanted me to play rugby because I was 200. I was a big kid. I was 240 pounds of just pure emotional eating. Like I was a big <laughs> kid. And I, I still do that. Like if this goes really well, going to be celebrating with a full chicken. Like I'm still that person. If it doesn't go well, I have an appointment already booked with Dr. Hagen does. Um, I still do that. I was a big kid. So he wanted me to play, but I was just like, I'm not going to do that. And he called me a wuss. I remember he was just like, you, you, you can't, what, you, you're too scared to play rugby? And I explained to him, no, I'm just not stupid. Uh, because, like, I've been aware, like, I'm not, I've seen your team. It is, the only impressive streak they've made was they were scoreless in two full seasons. Like, that's it. And I treated sports then like I treat sports now. I am a diehard bandwagon fan. I, like, I, oh, I, let's go Raptors if they're winning. Like, I just, I love it. It's, the Blue Jays are great until they're not. Like, if they win, let's celebrate. If they lose, like, I got work tomorrow. I don't care. Uh, so even then, I was like, I'm not going to play your sport. Um, but then all my friends went, and they played grade 10. They all went and played, and they won one game that year. They improved. And then second year, 
they won not only won a bunch of games, but in grade 11, they actually made it to the playoffs. Grade 12, they had it projected that they were going to not only make it to the playoffs, but they had a really good team coming up. They were going to win the entire province. They were going to dominate, and I believed in them at this point, and so I am a bandwagon person to the core, so I signed up. I'm now part of the team, because I want to win. I want a medal. So, I get on the team, and we start playing. Now, my we always had to play. Our team not only lost in the previous years to other teams, we'd always lose to the big city teams. There's only two cities on PEI, but like the big city team of Charlottetown, the city kids, like with their dominant, unrivaled population of 55,000, like just this crazy people, all these city kids that were just so fancy, and like some of them even, there was rumors that some of them came from like a middle to upper five-figure income family, like big time family, like it was crazy. One of them even had a car with a sunroof, and like you, not even a push button, like a, not a crank one, a push button one, crazy. So we'd always play these big city kids, but we were the hicks. We came from the redneck end of the island, and my coach was smart. He took that, he took advantage that we were from the redneck, the hick part of the island, and he started scouting the roughest-looking characters for this rugby team you could ever imagine. Our rugby team was filled with cattle farmers and fishermen that, like, some of these kids on our team woke up at 3.30 in the morning, fished an entire morning with their family, then went to school. Do you know how intimidating it is to play a teenager in rugby when they've already wrestled a 500-pound tuna? That's insane. So he stocked this team with the most intimidating characters you could ever imagine. We were basically like the East Coast Canadian version of the Longest Yard. Like, we were insanely skilled and dominant and ugly-looking team, and we embraced that, that, that character. We embraced that ruggedness, and we even started... Like, some of our players, when they showed up to a game, were literally fresh off the boat. Like, we were... It was amazing, and they would show up with, you know, with the flannel jacket and rubber boots, and we would intimidate these other teams. He's like, I can't play. They're already working professionals. Like, I can't play these grown men. It was like watching a men's league team play in elementary school. Uh, it was fantastic, and we started winning. We started intimidating these teams. We started not only winning, but we started dominating. The first tournament, no one even scored against us. The second tournament, no one beat us, no one scored against us. We went into the season, we started dominating. No one could score against this team. They were intimidating by the rubber boots, the flannel jackets, our low incomes, our five o'clock shadows. They were intimidated by all of this, and we were dominated. We made it all the way to the provincial finals. And this was a huge deal. Like We had to beat the provincial finals of Prince Edward Island. We had to beat three, four teams to get there. It was amazing. <laughs> And we make it to the finals, and when we get there, it is, we have, like, our entire school comes out for this. There's six, there's about 1,000, 1,100 people all littered along the sides of this field that's in the, I wish I was joking, the middle of a potato field. And we're about, we're warming up, and we're getting intense, and, and, and little do they know, but inside is the Colonel Gray, the Charlottetown Colonel Gray High School. And they're in the locker room, and they're getting psyched up because they're intimidated by us. And they're in the locker room. Meanwhile, the mascot is, is, is running around. Now, the mascot, we were the West Style Wolverines. Think of what a Wolverine looks like right now. You don't know. Uh, they're, like, you can't, even if it was, we had a Hollywood budget of a million dollars, we're not going to have a realistic-looking Wolverine costume. Ours was worth $200. It was a bear with a droopy tongue. Like, it just, that's all it was. People were just confused. They're just like, oh, the, the crackhead bear is scaring me. So our buddy Tom, who doesn't play in the team, wanted to support us. And he, the only way he knew how was to make his own costume as a mascot. So while we're warming up, he's inside in the locker room, and he, he's in the shower room, in the shared locker room. And while the Colonel Gray High School team is getting ready, Tom is just is getting his entire body painted in our school colors, blue and yellow. He's got tight underwear. He's wearing nothing but tight underwear, shoes that are painted yellow, tight underwear is painted yellow. His whole body is painted blue. He's shaved his head, to, and he's shaved his chest. And for, I don't know why he shaved down there, but he's, he's we shaved everything. And he's painted blue. He looks like he just got back 
from a rejected like blue man group audition. It was weird. And, uh, and he's getting ready. And his, his dad is painting him. And his dad looks up at him. And Tom has had, he's crazy. He's a legendary character. And he's had drinking issues in the past. And his dad looks up at him and said, I'm really proud of you that you're doing this for your friends. And I'll be exceptionally proud of you if you're doing it without alcohol. And Tom looks at his dad with these big, loving eyes, and he says to his dad, truthfully, like, honestly, Dad, I'm not drinking. His dad said, good, that's amazing. And meanwhile, the, uh, the, the three grams of magic mushrooms that he took are starting to kick in. So Tom starts looking. Those big, doughy eyes were only love. And he starts looking around just thinking, I need to get out of here. And while he's thinking that, and the psilocybin is causing paranoia, and he's just looking at everything. He's like, I got to go. I, gotta, I love you, but I got to go. I don't even know if I love you anymore. And he's freaking out. The other team, Colonel Gray, starts flicking on the lights on and off and chanting, kill, kill. Kill. Not the best thing to hear when you're starting to trip on mushrooms and you're painted blue. So he starts running out. Tom runs out into the hallway and starts running down to get away from whatever that chant was. And while he does, he forgets that he's wearing a yellow cape, which says on the back of it very clearly, die, gray, die. While he's running, it's flapping behind him. And the 30 kids from the Colonel Gray High School team come running out and start chasing him, seeing him. and just being like, oh, that's our enemy. Tom, it's his worst nightmare. He makes it to the field, and, uh, and the game happens. The game goes. Uh, he runs onto the field, and everybody cheers. Everybody's freaking out that Tom is running onto the field. He's painted blue. Look at him. It's amazing. And the poor kid that's dressed up as the Wolverine sweating his balls off is like, who's this fucking guy? And Tom runs onto the field, and we start the game, and the game goes. It's scoreless through the first half, scoreless through the second, second half. We make it to overtime, and, uh, and it's scoreless, and we run, and our best player runs down the field and scores on the sidelines. And we score with two minutes left. And I'm the kicker. Now, I have the biggest moment in my sports history at that point, and I'm standing there, and the crowd is silent. And as I'm lining up the kick, I'm looking at it, and I always take one step back right before my kick, and I'm about to make the biggest kick of my life. And while the crowd is perfectly silent, I'm about to make it, and suddenly I hear this voice behind me that just says, Don't fuck it up, man. And I turn, and there's Tom standing there, just being like, please don't fuck it up. Everybody says, shut up! And then the ref calms everything down, says, we're resetting. And then I step back again, and I walk up, and I make this kick, and the kick goes up and comes down arcs. And it looks good. It looks like it might stand a chance. And it comes down and hits the crossbar and bounces up into the air and comes down again and hits it again and falls in. And the crowd goes crazy, and I run back to my team and I throw the kicking tee and I'm so excited and in this best moment of my life when it's black I received the biggest tackle of my life from my very supportive and loving overly excited rejected member of the blue man group who just wanted to give me a hug and tackled the shit out of me ending my rugby career for life it was one of the greatest moments of my life, but we beat the shit out of those city kids, and I'll never forget that. Thank you, guys. You've been so much fun. All right. Coming up next, we have Siva Vijentra. Uh, she is our uh, cycling uh, columnist at Spacing, and uh, we're very happy to have her. So, Siva, come on out. Make my new boss work for me. So, so I'm, I'm Spacing's bike columnist, and this is a bike story. And it's actually the bike story that opens my column in the upcoming issue. So this is not only an advertisement for the magazine that you're all going to run out and pick up right after this. It's also a spoiler alert. Uh, so <laughs> so um, it starts... Um, about three or four years ago, I was, um, I'm biking along College Street uh, around College and Young, where there's no bike lane on college. And, uh, and I was biking along, it's dark, and uh, the driver, who's sitting in his parked car uh, right next to me, pulls out of his spot without signaling, directly drives into my front wheel, and um, time stops... I slowly keel over, I shout something, I have no idea what I'm saying, and, and then I fall. But luckily, at the time, I was working for Cycle Toronto, which is a bike advocacy group, and my job was telling people what to do 
when they got hit by a car. So I knew exactly what to do. So number one, I did not get back on my bike because I knew that um, when you get hit by a car, you're full of adrenaline and you're full of shock and you think you're okay and you just want to get back on your bike when actually your bike is totally damaged and you're also totally injured and you're bleeding and you have no idea. So I knew that, that I shouldn't get back on my bike. I pulled my bike over. I called for witnesses, which was huge. I, I was really proud of myself afterwards. I got two witnesses, got their names and their numbers. Um, one of the witnesses told me that he hadn't seen it, but he had heard what I had shouted. It turned out it was Jesus, which is a funny thing for someone to shout unconsciously when you're raised Hindu. Um, <laughs> but uh, I got their names. I, I got the license plate. I got the insurance information. And then most importantly, I called the cops because that's what you're supposed to do when you get hit by a car, even if it's a fairly minor collision, even though I didn't really need to go to the hospital um, what I had been telling everybody was that how important it is to call the cops so that the collision is reported because the more collisions that are reported along streets that don't have bike lanes, the more likely it is that you eventually get a bike lane on that street. And I, as a good activist, I was already writing letters to counselors. I was signing petitions and here I was going to get it done bureaucratically by making this collision report. So I, so I called the police. Six months later, I, I got a subpoena. It turned out that the driver was contesting the charge. Now, the charge was an unsafe start for not checking his blind spot before pulling out. It was $110. He was going to contest it, though. So this is a thing that has come up in the news a little bit, which is that um, when you report something, whether it's a minor bike collision or a sexual assault charge, you, it's not your case anymore. You're just a witness in the state's case against the person who's charged. So I was just a witness, and uh, so I had to go into court. I had to take time off work. Luckily, I worked for a bike organization, so it wasn't a big deal. Um, I went into court. Turned out it was postponed. The trial was postponed. Went back a second time. Again, I got there, and I, again, I didn't testify. Um, I was just told that uh, there had been some kind of lower plea reached or something like that. And I was standing in the hallway and I was like, what could possibly be a lesser fee than $110 for not checking your blind spot? I was kind of upset, but I was like, I was doing that like gendered female thing of smiling and, and trying to be super polite about it. And so I went to the defense lawyer and I said, um, so can you tell me a little bit about what, what, the, what, what ended up happening? I mean, all I heard was that I'm not needed. And he was like, well, it's actually, you, you have no right to know what happened. And I said, I said, well, I'm the victim of, so I, I think I, I do have a right to know. And he said, victim. And, I, and then I said, well, and uh, still smiling, gritted teeth. I was like, I, I, I was hurt. And then we're in this hallway, this big hallway at Old City Hall. Um, the doors to the courtrooms are closed, but there are tons of people sitting on the benches. And this, and this defense lawyer, of the, the defense lawyer of the guy who had, who had hit me, he shouted so loud that a bunch of people jumped. He shouted, well, if you don't like what the court system is like here, you can go back to where you came from. And <laughs> my, my face just crumpled. Uh, and I just ran down the stairs and went to the bathroom and cried for about 20 minutes. And uh, the funny thing is, not uh, funny, but, but this year, 2017, marks... 25 years, this week actually marks 25 years since my mother, sister, and I um, arrived in Canada as asylum seekers, as refugees. So at the time that I was hit, um, I'd already been in Canada for 20 years. I had been a citizen for over 10 years. And still, that, him saying that to me just took the breath out of me. And it was a moment that obviously is underlying a lot of... Um, a lot of the things that, uh, a lot of the feelings that I have, which is that, that no matter how much I love this country and feel that I belong here, uh, there are always going to be some people and some systems that don't agree with me. And that this lawyer who represented uh, the system, the, the um, judicial system, um, his, what, his statement, and, and it was a gut reaction, right? A knee-jerk reaction from him that that would be what he would say. That that showed that within um, the policing system and the judicial system and, the, and even in policy, that there still isn't an acknowledgement and a space made for people who don't look a certain way or who don't um, come from a certain background. 
So, um, so I tried to be this do-gooder by doing something that I thought was going to get me a bike lane on college, and there's still no bike lane on college. So that, it, it's a um, kind of a disappointing end to that story, but I guess what we can hope is that uh, next time I get hit, I'll get somebody who I'll get um, somebody who uh, understands the need to get a bike lane for the for the driver's own safety as well. Thanks. Guys, keep it going, please. So good, right? Would you believe that's her first time ever doing this on stage? Jesus, so great. As a side note, there was kind of a weird woo in the middle of that story too, right? Did I hear that weird? You guys catch that? It was like, bad part of the story. Woo! There's always one. There's always one. Audience, can I get like one collective woo from you? It's a lovely sound, right? Um, first time I asked an audience to do that on stage, a man from the back yelled out, We'll see! <laughs> That's how we started off that set. So... Um, Guys, this is going better than that. I feel really good about it. Uh, Lynn, do you want to do our stage banter? You want to get back to that? Yeah, let's get back to the banter, buddy. You want to tell them the thing? I wanted to tell you the thing. Uh, the reason I wanted to do this, why I was excited to do this with uh, my good friend Graham, is, uh, you know, a couple years back, uh, I had just graduated from journalism school. I used to be in theater school, and uh, I love journalism. I love what I'm doing now. But I really, I had the bug, and I, I missed doing it. So um, one day, I sort of knew Graham, and I walked into one of these shows that he was putting on, and uh, and I loved it. And uh, so I sort of came to him. I was like, "Can I do a, can I do a story?" And he was like, "Of course." And uh, you know, it's kind of a sad time in my life. Things are changing, and uh, I found this community. And so we're talking about cities, and uh, what I really like, what I personally really like about a city like Toronto is that uh, you can sort of walk in off the street sometimes, if you're lucky, and find a community. I know that's really mushy. Uh, I know we have our problems as well. and <laughs> That's not to uh, undermine talking about those, but... Um... Let's wrap it up here, man. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fair. Uh, I'd like we... to point out, uh, before we totally wrap it up, that Lynn uh, left theater to go into journalism. Yeah. <laughs> I make the smart career choices, you know. Yeah. I, I like a sure thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> one dying industry for another dying industry. Now I want to bring up Perry King. Uh, he is a journalist. He has had work in The Star, The Globe. He is a contributor to The Ethnic Isle, uh, whose spacing has paired up with uh, for our issue, which should have been here, uh, but we literally had to stop the presses. Uh, by the time people listening at home uh, are hearing this podcast, you will have it in your hands. It's available wherever fine magazines are sold. So please give it up for Perry King. Hey, everybody. How's everyone doing? All right. Well, one of the things that really kind of ground my gears as a kid, and still grinds my gears to this day, is that um, I, don't, I don't care who, how old the person is, or what we're doing, I don't know if it's in the office, atmosphere, or just, you know, casually on the street. I have someone ask me, do you play basketball? Do you ball? Can you shoot? Um, I've always been, I've always had reservations about that. I hate basketball. I hate playing basketball. I like to write about it. I like to observe people about it. I've written features before about basketball. I just don't like to play. I, I, there's something about it that kind of uh, winds you down. My knees hurt, so I, it's no good. Um, but if there was any sport that I have kind of a good connection to, it's baseball. I've always found myself coming back to it. There's only one sports team that I can really follow that is, you know, truly to my heart, and they play in the Sky Dome. The Sky Dome. And, you know, I, I think back to it. When I was seven, you know, Joe Carter caught that ball at first base and they won the World Series. I was asleep uh, as a seven-year-old you know, because it happened really late at night. Um, thank you, Dave Winfield. But I've always kind of seen myself 
you know, kind of relating to the sport, there are a lot of black players on the team, um, and maybe not as many now, but I found, I found myself kind of connecting to this team. There was no other professional team that had this kind of representation for me. And, you know, I, I would come up and, you know, people would ask me when I was seven, eight years old, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think the thing I said, I said a whole bunch of things. I think I specifically remember um, being, saying comedian because I really liked Jim Carrey at the time. Uh, but I really wanted to be a baseball player. And I really wanted to represent the Jays. I wanted to be a Jay. That, that kind of really uh, pulls at me. But it, it never happened. I never became a Jay. Um, I mean, the reality is, you know, I, I grew up in a single-parent household. So we couldn't really afford the league fees. My mom didn't drive, so didn't really drive to tournaments or anything like that. Um, so I, I found myself just kind of lingering, kind of admiring the sport, maybe playing, pick up ball here and there. And, uh, you know, it was fine. I mean, I, I'm a journalist, so I guess I have somewhat of a, it's a little ironic, I guess I can be at the sidelines of a sport, professional or amateur, and, uh, you know, talk to people who are doing these great things. But I'm not, I'm not out there. I'm not out there. It's not the same thing, I guess. And you talk to professionals today or retired professionals, and they'll tell you exactly what they, you know, how they feel about playing, that they, there's some kind of um, romantic pull to the sport, that you'll play until your knees give out or you're unable to, to move or your back is so you know, throttled that you can't really you know, get out of bed in the morning. But for me, I came up uh, in the business writing about sports. I find myself connecting to people about, uh, about these kind of things. So I, I kind of left it alone. Uh, started to write a lot about news and news features and stuff. And didn't really give it much of a much of a, a thought at all, really. You know, sports are sports are sports. Uh, the daily narrative about sports is well, I guess you guys know about the win or lose kind of thing. So that's one of those things. But I found myself it, it kind of changed for me in 2010. I just got out of school in 2009. I went to uh, a school out on the East Coast. And um, I found myself kind of writing about sports in a, in a really big way again. But I found myself back in Toronto, mounds of student debt. But I got this job uh, for Gleaner Community Press, which is uh, very local. They, I guess they're based out of the Annex. I don't know if anyone has heard of the Annex Gleaner, but they're, uh, they've been around. They were around for uh, when I was uh, in school, interning, uh, writing different kinds of things. And uh, I was sitting in the office. They used to have an office in the building that is now CSI Annex on Bathurst Street, Atlantics. And uh, I'm just sitting at my desk kind of figuring out what to write that week. And uh, the publisher comes up to me and he gives me, gives me a lead on the story. It's uh, not really a big deal. He's, he says, I'm paraphrasing, you know, there, there's, there's a whole bunch of guys that play at Bickford Park. Uh, it's like, Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they're really, like, really enthused, and, you know, they bring a lot of people out from the community to, you know, to play softball. And I'm like, oh, okay, well. And uh, if anyone knows uh, a bit about Bigfoot Park, I'll do a little tangent for you, if you don't mind. It has to do with Garrison Creek, <clears throat> the name of, uh, name of our fair, uh, fair establishment. But um, Bigfoot Park is part of the, the Garrison Ravine, and it's, um, you know, the ravine kind of dates back to the 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, before all the dirt that was, I guess, used to, you know, it was buried out during the, the building of the Bloor Line and the Young Line, a lot of that dirt was laid out along Garrison Creek, among other places. Um, at that time, I guess Bigford wasn't a pit. If everyone, when everyone thinks of a pit, they think of Christie pits. But that's essentially how it came to be. They used the dirt to you know, kind of buried around. There used to be bridges along Bloor Street, along Harvard Street, along Dundas. It used to be a very wide open natural reserve kind of area, but we don't really see those things anymore. We kind of see like hints and clues in the community, but you don't quite, um, you don't quite know. I don't think we have the, the immensity of, of how different Toronto was at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. So it's, it's I don't know, I've, I've walked these areas you know, working for the cleaner was actually really fantastic for that. But I'm getting on attention. <laughs> anyway, so this story, I didn't think there was any kind of community value to it. People playing a sport? Sure. But I realized that these people cared very much about 
using public space and being a part of a community of people. This group, excuse me, this group was formed in around 2000. It was a group of uh, filmmakers, creatives, a lot of people that worked in social services, um, a very diverse group of people, racially. Um, it was organized by a guy who programs at TIFF now. Um, and they, they came upon Bigford, and I find Bigford to be special now because it's not quite like Christie Pitts. It's a place that is kind of buried behind the Bigford Center at Blue Street. Um, and you, know, you don't really see the diamonds in there, but there is a softball diamond in there. And it's a big uh, green hill that kind of defines left field on that side. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have much of a choice. I, you know, I went, you know, talked to the guy on the phone, talked to Steve. His name's, uh, his name's Steve. And, uh, you know, just wrote the story, submitted the, the first draft, and, and the publisher was like, that's it? I was like, there's not much to it. I mean, it's just a whole bunch of guys who are, and girls who are, you know, just kind of uh, taking part in this, you know, thing they do Saturday afternoons. Not a big deal. And I'm like, no. And he, he was like, no. I think he should go out there. I think he, think he need, you know, a little more color, a little more, more of an experience with it. It's, it's not enough to kind of, well, I, I kind of get it. I mean, I was a cup reporter. I was trying to learn how to write, I guess, context, whatever. So that Saturday, I think he wanted it on the Monday, the draft anyway. So I, I go out to Bigfoot Park. And if you've seen the park, it, it's, it's a nice place. It, maybe before it was renovated, and I'll get to the renovated part in a second, but... Uh, you know, it, it was, it's an old park. The, the diamond itself is kind of worse for wear. The home plate was kind of really buried, like there's little puddles there. If it rained, the, 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 uh, the gravel itself was a combination of different things, but it turned out kind of a white gravel surface. The, the outfield is uneven, but I don't think there was any complaints about any part of that field from each and every person that I spoke to. Every person that picked up a metal bat and, uh, you know, got a pitch underhand, you know, they partook in something, a ritual of sorts, uh, a way of seeing each other during the week. And, and the more that I sat there, I sat, initially sat there, um, the more I thought, well, I think they're getting more out of this than I thought or initially thought. So I sat down with a whole bunch of people, and they, they would have different measures of excitement, how they would, you know, during the week be in their office and, and wait for Saturday because uh, it was uh, the day that they kind of got out of the house and, you know, and partook in the community and you know, met up with their friends and stuff. It was, it was kind of a great ritual. They, they were great people. And as it turned out, they asked me to play. And I was like, okay, sure. And uh, I picked up the bat that day. I hadn't played softball since I was in grade like, six, seven. I didn't really, I had no interest. I, there was no, nothing pulling me to it after, you know, the age of 12, 13 years old. And I got to tell you, things changed. I was there every week. I finished the story. You know, my, my publisher liked it. They asked me back. I kept coming back. And, uh, you know, you know, finished out the season, which was kind of half of the season. I, I kind of reported on in, uh, in June, July, something like that. And then... Uh, you know, they do different things. Um, their, their, their group, after games, would go to Southside Louis, which doesn't exist anymore. It's uh, an establishment that, uh, it's kind of like this place. It's a pub. They had different kinds of fare. The, the, the building itself was at Clinton and, and College Street, and then the, the room would go all the way to the back. I know there was an alleyway back there, but um, it, was, it was great. And uh, when one of uh, the... Because one of the people that worked there, her name was Donna, set out to create her own restaurant at College in Austin called The Caledonian. The group of us were pretty decided that we were going to move over to The Caledonian and uh, go there after every game. So for five years, we played softball, we went to The Caledonian, and I still go there to this day. Things have changed. Things have changed, i, I got to tell you. Um, because of the renovations, I'll tell you about. Um, it's, it's an old part that needed kind of an, uh, an uplift and changes. It caused the diamond to close. So nobody was playing. I didn't play. I, you know, things changed. Like more freelance assignments, uh, more opportunities to you know, do different things. I eventually became an usher for, for a sports company, a sure we named. Um, 
And, it, it, you know, I tried to make as much time as I could, but people were starting to kind of gravitate away, and the user fees were not ideal. But it really peaked for me. It peaked so much for me that I became the MVP in one of the last seasons that they had the league. They closed it down last year. They told me during the holidays. It's kind of a, kind of a sad moment. And I told them, well, I guess if no one is committing, I suppose you have to close or, or stop what you have to do. But it changed my life. It did. In any context, it's, it's a moment where you say, well, you know, you played a sport, you walked away. I think that happens a lot, especially, you know, anyone who picks up and plays pickup basketball or something like that. But for me, it was probably my only great chance to be an MVP. Guys, please keep it going. First timer again. Amazing. Guys, we have one more incredible performer for you tonight. She has an incredible show coming up at Theater Pass Mariah Lair this season. It is called Sound of the Beast. She has been nominated for the Governor General's Award two times. She is pretty incredible as a human being. Let's get DM St. Bernard up here, shall we? Okay, my story is short, so a really quick piece of business first, okay? Earlier on this evening, uh, one of my uh, colleagues told a story about cycling. And, uh, and then Graham pointed out that during the most racist part of that story, there was a woo. You guys remember? I'd like to confess that that was me. <laughs> and I would like to clarify. Thank you. It was not the woo of tailgating rednecks, but instead the infinitely more nuanced woo of Ric Flair, which in this context meant, yup. You know what I'm saying, you guys? I wanted to clarify before anyone became uncomfortable with who might be in their environment. It's just me. Stay uncomfortable, though. Okay, the story that I'm, I'm telling you tonight is not my own. It's one that's gifted to me by Algonquin Irish playwright Yvette Nolan, who currently resides in Saskatchewan, although the story takes place in Toronto. So, for the duration of my story, please imagine me as an Algonquin Irish playwright, about four years older, similar in physique, way better in face. Okay, imagine, this is awesome. Thank you. I'll take your number later. <laughs> so I'm heading west on Queen on the 501 streetcar on my way to have lunch with Franco when I become aware of this incident unfolding behind me. A young woman's voice saying, but why do you have to be so racist? And then an older man's voice muttering, uh, a younger man saying, well, now you know what it's like for us. Another young man saying, just let it go, girl. Then the old man muttering some more, and the young girl again. Yeah, but you didn't say young people, you said orientals. Apparently, when they were getting on the streetcar, the young woman had cut off this old fella on the way on, and he'd said something about orientals. Anyways, it continues. I'm not uh, getting involved, I'm eavesdropping but I'm not getting involved until the older man says, look, I just don't like immigrants, okay? Okay, that's it, I'm in. So I turn around and I look. The old man is sitting in the back of the streetcar. The younger woman is of Chinese descent. The two young men trying to calm her down are black. There's another older white man sitting next to the old racist. All right, listen, I say, you're all immigrants. And he says, uh, I was born here. My father was born here, and my grandfather was born here. And I say, yeah, and I'm First Nation, so I'm telling you, you're an immigrant. And you're welcome here, but there are rules. There's room for everybody, but there are rules. And he says to her, hey, why don't you just move to, to Vancouver? There's all kinds of Orientals out there. And she says, I was born in Chase, B.C. Do you even know where that is? And then the other old white man says, ah, he's crazy, and gets up and gets off the streetcar. 
At this point, the young woman is so upset that she's crying. And the young men with her are like, oh, easy girl, just let it go. And the old man says, look, I'm 75 years old. I'm not going to change. And I say, you know, guys, he's right. He is old and he's going to die. And then all of this will change. And the woman says, it never changes. It never changes. It's always like this everywhere. And I say, oh no, this will change. In my life, I have seen change. And in your life, you will see all of this change. Look around, look at us. My mother would say it's like trying to teach a pig to sing, I told her. It's a waste of time and it irritates the pig. And the old man is sitting there nodding like, yeah, yeah. And the two black guys are shaking their heads. So the young woman gets off the streetcar and we all go back to ourselves and continue to ignore the old fart. He's still muttering behind us. I'm sitting next to a young, white, tattooed, pierced guy. He's shaking his head. He's like, unbelievable. More muttering from behind. And then we hear the old fellow go, and what about Pearl Harbor? Uh, and me and the young guy next to me start to giggle and then laugh, shaking the seat. Pearl Harbor. And the guy that's still back there with the old man says, what are you talking about, Pearl Harbor? Do you even know what country you're in? Because Pearl Harbor, I mean, that was the Americans and the Japanese and the Hawaiians, right? And we're in Canada, and she's Chinese. Oh, my God. But the good and the great things. One, we outnumbered the racist. Two, nobody got stabby about it. Three, Everyone was articulate. Four, those guys had that girl's back. And five, everyone on the streetcar heard the whole thing, whether or not they chose to participate. Just before I get off the streetcar, the guy sitting next to me takes a call on his cell phone. Yeah, I'm almost there, he says, just passing Shaw. I just heard the most fascinating race conversation. I'll tell you about it when I get there. Mm, Toronto. I thank you, Yvette thanks you, mad love to Stuart, and I'm going to work on the face. Good night, thank you. That's the show. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your baseball team, your favorite comedian, and a subway car full of people. If you enjoy our podcast, like, share, and subscribe. Also, a review on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I produce this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions at pixelpi.ca. Hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and scoops on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word. Or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. Until next time, go live some good stories. Cheers. Cheers.